Heya! Welcome to Tangling Tales. Here we minimally to moderately modify and modestly modernize myths, legends, fairy tales, folklore, fables, and any other story we stumble across. I am Amber, your humble host and story spinner. Let's begin. Today's tale comes from Fairy and Folk Tales of the Irish Peasantry, collected by William Butler Yeats. The story is called Soul Cages, and interestingly enough, it too is about a fisherman. Maybe I have my theme for this season, eh? Anyway, enjoy. Everybody's heard of mermaids, yeah? Those alluring creatures of the sea, with the top half of them being that of a beautiful lady, and the bottom half of them being a fish's tail. Ever wonder about the male version of them? Those are called marrows, and to be sure are not nearly so pretty as their female companions, having green hair and green teeth, small eyes, and bulbous red noses. Marrows are said to be jolly fellows, though. Always good for a story and a drink. It's on account of the drinking that their noses are so large and red. Or at least that's what I heard. Now it so happens that in my grandfather's grandfather's time, or maybe a little bit before, on the coast of Ireland in County Clare, there lived a fisherman by the name of Jack Doherty. Jack lived exactly as his father and grandfather had before him, which is to say all alone except for his wife and whatever children were yet to come. He lived in the same spot, too, mighty far away from town, with only seagulls and seals for neighbors. The people in town often wondered why the Doherty family was so fond of their wild spot, away from the comforts and company of civilization, with naught but the great wide ocean to look upon. But they had their reasons, the Dohertys did. The Doherty house was located in just about the only spot on that particular coastline where anybody can make a comfortably livable abode. Just beside their house was a little creek where a boat could be snugged in, safe as a puffin in her nest, and out from that creek into the sea ran a ledge of sharp and broken rocks. When the Atlantic, as is her custom, is raging with storms and a strong westerly is blowing over the coast, more than one richly laden merchant ship broke themselves up on those rocks. What then happened to their goods? The bales of cotton, silk, and tobacco, the pipes of wine, the casks of brandy, kegs of ales, and whatnot? Sure, some had end up on the bottom of the sea, but wouldn't you know it, some had washed right up on the shore in front of the Doherty house. Now, I wouldn't be lying to say that the Dohertys were kind and humane to any sunken sailor lucky enough to make it to shore. And more than once, Jack took his rowboat out to lend a hand towards bringing the crew off from the wreck. But when the ship had gone to pieces and all the crew was lost, surely nobody'd blame the Dohertys for keeping or selling whatever goods washed ashore at their own selves, except maybe the king. 
And everybody knows royalty is rich enough without having to get what's floating in the sea. So nobody was telling him. Jack and his wife had their own little estate there by the sea and lived as rich as any'd want to. Beyond the fish he'd brought in, Jack had the supplying of half the gentlemen in the county with those godsends that washed ashore. So no couple ate, drank, slept better than Jack and his wife. Nor did one make a prouder appearance of church than Mr. and Mrs. Doherty did on Sundays. Now, Jack and them being so far from civilization and so close to the sea were privy to many a strange sight, for as you know, lonely coastlines are strange and eerie places. But Jack wasn't afraid. In fact, he reveled in the strangeness of it. He was so far from being afraid of marrows and the like that the very first wish in his heart was to meet one. He'd heard they were mighty fellows, and that luck always came from an acquaintance with them. So he'd never but dimly discern marrows moving along the face of the waters in their robes of mist, but he'd make for them directly. And many a scolding did Biddy, that being the name of Jack's wife, bestow upon Jack for spending his whole day out at sea and bringing home no fish. Little did poor Biddy know what fish Jack was after. It was rather annoying to Jack that though he lived in a place where marrows were as plenty as lobsters, that he never could get a right view of one. What vexed him more was that both his father and grandfather had often seen them. Why, Jack even remembers stories when he was a child of his grandfather being such friends with a marrow that was only for fear of vexing a priest that Jack's own dad didn't have a marrow as a godfather. Though, if pushed, Jack would admit that he didn't know this to be exactly true. It was true enough for stories, though, and that is true enough. Fate, it seemed, after years of keeping Jack from knowing any more, began to believe it was only right that he should know as much as his father and grandfather did. Accordingly, one day he strolled a little further northward along the coast than usual, and as he was turning a point, saw something like to nothing he'd ever seen before. Perched on a rock a little ways out to sea, why, the creature gave a start, shoved the hat on his head, and dived down head first from the rock into the water. This near miss piqued Jack's curiosity, and he was constantly thereafter directing his steps to that point in the hopes of meeting that marrow properly. Still, he never did see that sea gentleman with the cocked hat, no matter how many times he went back. And he went back with some great frequency, again and again and again, until he had quite convinced himself that what he had seen that day was a daydream all in his mind because he wanted to befriend a marrow so badly. He kept going back, though, just in case. Then, one rough day, when the sea was running mountains high, Jack got it in his head to go out and look at that marrow's rock. And maybe he'd have more luck if he went out in the wind, rather than waiting for a nice and calm day like he had been. <laughs> and lo, what did he spy but that very marrow, or one much like it, cutting fish on the rock, then diving down, and coming up, and diving down, and coming up again. So now Jack knew that he only had to wait for a good blustery day to see a marrow, something he checked to make sure he was right about by repeating several times. 
that he could see one of the gentlemen of the sea almost any time he wanted wasn't nearly enough for him. He wouldn't be satisfied until he became friends with one. Much will have more, as the saying goes, and Jack was just bound and determined to have more. That determination paid out when one spectacularly blustery day, before he could get to the point where he could see the Marrow's Rock, a storm came on so furiously that Jack was obliged to take shelter in one of the caves that are so numerous along the coast. And isn't he surprised to find himself with company? There in that cave, sitting as if in deep serious thought, was a Marrow. It had long green teeth, green hair, pig eyes, and a red nose. It sat there naked as anything, with a fish's tail, legs with scales, and short, fin-like arms. And there beneath its arm was a tricorn, or cocked, hat. Well, Jack shook off his surprise and went up to that marrow and bowed as best he could. Your servant, sir, he said. Your servant, kindly, Jack Doherty, the marrow answered. To be sure, then, how is it that your honor knows my name, exclaimed Jack. And why wouldn't I know it, said the marrow, a twinkle in his eye. Me knowing your grandfather before he was married to Judy Reagan, your grandmother. Oh, I was fond of your grandfather, Jack. He was a mighty worthy man, that I'd never met his match above or below, before or since, for sucking a shell full of brandy. I hope, my boy, that you take after him. You can be sure of it. If and my ma had raised me on nothing but, I couldn't hold it better than I do now, bragged Jack. Well, I like to hear such talk like that, Jack. You and I must get better acquainted, if only for your grandfather's sake. But for sure, I hope you're a better drinker than your father. That man had no head at all. Oh, I'm, I'm sure, since your honor lives down under the sea. So Jack and the Marrow parted the best of friends. On the Monday they were to meet, Jack was only a little surprised to see the Marrow had two cocked hats with him instead of one. Might I ask, sir? said Jack. Why, you brought two hats with you today? You're not fixing to give me one to keep for the novelty of the thing, are you? What? No, Jack, no, no, said the Marrow. I don't get my hats so easily to part with them that way. But I want you to come down and dine with me, and I brought you the hat to dine with. Faith, you want me to go down to the bottom of the sea? Sure, I'd be smothered and choked up with water to say nothing of being drowned. Then what'd my poor Biddy do? Pfft, what's it matter what she do? Your grandfather never talked like that. Many is the time he put on that same hat and dived down boldly after me. Many's the snug bit of dinner and the good shell full of brandy we had under that water, the old marrow said. No jokes, sir. Well, then, I'm sorrowful for doubting. If my grandpad can do it, so can I. Let's go. <laughs> That's your grandfather all over again, said the old marrow. Come along and do as I do. Then they both left the cave and walked over to the water. The marrow jumped in and Jack jumped in and they swam to the rock a ways out, the one that Jack had been watching for so long, and they climbed up on it. They went to the far side overlooking the sea, and Jack looked down. It was straight as the wall of a house, and looked so deep that Jack almost cowed, but he couldn't lose face in front of a marrow, what knew his granddad so well. 
Now, Jack, said the marrow. You just put this hat on your head like this and keep your eyes wide open. Take hold of my tail and follow me. You'll see what you'll see. The marrow dashed and Jack dashed and both jumped boldly into the sea with Jack barely holding on to the marrow's tail, but he did. And they went down, down, down into the deep. Jack thought they'd never stop going and he began to regret his boldness. He wished more than once to be back home, warm and dry, all snugged up with Biddy by their comfortable fireside. But what use is wishing when you're in the middle of a thing? Still, he held hard to the marrow's tail, slippery though it was. And at last, after miles and miles, to Jack's great surprise, they got out of the water. Jack actually found himself on dry land at the bottom of the sea. They landed right in front of the neat little house, thatched very neatly with oyster shells. The marrow, turning about to Jack, welcomed him down. Flabbergasted is just about the right word for what Jack was at that moment. He couldn't hardly speak with with the wonder. Well, that and being all out of breath for traveling so fast under the water. He looked all around him and could see no living things except in the crabs and the lobsters, of which there were plenty walking leisurely across the sand. Overhead, the sea was like the sky, the fishes like the birds swimming in and out. Well, man, the marrow asked, what do you think? Are you choking and drowning? Or are you finding yourself in a bit of comfort? I dare say you didn't expect my home to look like this. Jack laughed. Truth, I never thought I'd see such a sight as this. Who would? Well, come along, Jack. Let's see what we've got to eat. Jack followed the marrow into the house, and there he saw a good kitchen filled with all the accoutrements, a handsome stove, plenty of pots and pans, and two young marrows cooking. His host then led him into a room that was scarcely furnished and quite shabbily, with nothing but planks and logs of wood to sit on and eat off of. There was, however, a good-sized fire blazing away in the hearth, a sight Jack welcomed, wet with having just swam the depths of the sea. He may have gotten through as dry as he went in, but that didn't mean he couldn't use a bit of warmth in his bones. Come now, and I'll show you, well, you know what, said the marrow with a sly look. And opening a door, he led Jack into a cellar filled with pipes and casks and hogheads and barrels. What do you say to that, Jack Doherty? Who says a body can't live comfortably under the water? Oh, never doubt of it, answered Jack. Most convincingly, because he was now most convinced of it. They went back to the rough furnished wood and found dinner laid. There was no tablecloth, but that didn't matter. Who needed finery with such good company and a feast before him and a full glass? Not Jack. (laughs) Not Jack at all. And the dinner was a feast to put even the finest table in the richest household to shame. There was not one kind of fish. There were ten, all the choicest cuts and tenderest morsels, with plenty of foreign wines and spirits to accompany them. Jack ate and drank until he could eat no more, then taking up a shell of brandy, went to bless and thanks his host. Here's to your honor, sir, he said, though begging your pardon. I don't yet know your name. Oh, that's true, said the marrow. 
Why, I never thought of it before. But better late than never, my name's Kumara. A mighty decent name that is, cried Jack, and taking up another shell of brandy. Here's to your good health, Kumara. May you live these fifty years to come. Fifty years, repeated Kumara. I'm obliged to you indeed, though if you had said five hundred, it would have been something worth wishing. By the law, sir, said Jack. You live to a powerful age here under the waters. You knew my grandfather, and he's been dead the better part of these sixty years. This must be a healthy place to live in. No doubt of it. But come, Jack, keep the liquor flowing. Shell after shell did they empty, and to Jack's exceeding surprise, he found that the drink never quite got into his head, owing, I suppose, to the sea being over them. It kept their noodles cool, at least mostly. Jack and old Kumara got exceedingly comfortable, though, and sang several songs, but Jack, if his life depended upon it, could never quite remember how they go. He knew them when they were sung, though, and the two revelers drank and sang and sang and drank for a goodly long time. At length, Kumara turned to Jack and said, Now, my dear boy, I'll show you my curiosities. He led Jack to a little door which opened to a large room filled with a great many odds and ends that Kumara had picked up over the years. What chiefly took Jack's attention, though, were the things like lobster pots ranging along the ground, along the wall. Well, Jack, said Oku, what do you think of my curiosities? Upon my soul, sir, they are mighty well worth looking at, said Jack. But might I be so bold as to ask what these things like lobster pots are? Ah, the soul cages. The what, sir? These things here are, are what I keep the souls in. What souls, if you don't mind me asking? Why, Kumara said, the souls of drowned sailors, of course. I come by them easily enough. I've only got to set a couple dozen of these traps when I see a good storm coming along, and then, when the sailors are drowned and the souls get out of them under the water, the poor things are almost perished to death, not being so used to the cold. So they make their way into my pots for shelter, and then I have them snug. I fetch them home and keep them here, warm and dry. Is it not well for them, poor souls, to get such good quarters? Well... Jack was so thunderstruck he didn't know what to say, so he said nothing. They went back to the dining room, had more brandy, which was excellent, and then, as Jack knew it was getting late and he didn't want Biddy to worry, he stood and said he thought it was time for him to go. As you like, Jack, said Kumara. But take a drink before you go. You've got a cold journey ahead of you. Jack knew better than to refuse a parting glass, and as he took it, wondered aloud how he'd be getting back home. "'Why worry about that when I'll be showing you the way?' said Ku. They went out of the house, and Kumara took one of the tricorn hats and put it on Jack the wrong way around. He then lifted Jack onto his shoulder that he might launch the man into the water. "'Now,' he says, "'you'll come up in just the same spot that you came down in, and Jack,' Mind you, throw me back the hat. Kumara then threw Jack off his shoulder and up shot Jack like a bubble. Away he went through the water, up to the very rock he had jumped from. And when Jack had found a landing spot, he threw the hat back in the water and it sunk like a stone.
The sun was just going down in a beautiful summer sky, so Jack perceived that it was not too late. <laughs> not late enough to, you know, overly worry his wife anyway. He set off home, but when he got there, he didn't say a word to Biddy about where he'd spent his day. Instead, he brooded on the state of the poor trapped souls and thought and thought and thought about what could be done to free them. At first, he thought he'd talk to a priest about it, but what could a priest do, and what did Kumara care for a priest? Besides, Ku was a good sort of fellow, and Jack believed him to be, you know, truly thinking that he was helping. But Jack knew also that these souls needed to be free to move on to wherever they needed to go. After much thought, Jack decided that the best thing to do was to invite Kumara to Jack's own house and make him drunk, if he were able. Then take his hat and go down and turn the pots up and let the soul freeze. Accordingly, he set about to do just that. Jack went to the rock he'd leapt from some days before and threw a stone into the water. Kumara soon surfaced and asked Jack what he's wanted. Jack then invited the marrow round to his house for a spot of dinner and a few drinks. And he did it on a day he knew his wife would be gone, so he wouldn't frighten her witless with the sight of a marrow. So the marrow went to visit Jack at Jack's house, and they dined on the finest fish Jack could provide and the finest foreign liquor they drank. Jack, thinking of those poor souls stuck in the lobster pots, plied the old marrow with glass after glass of brandy and drank glass after glass himself. He encouraged the marrow to sing and hoped it, he'd drink him under the table. But Jack forgot that he didn't have the sea over his own head to keep it cool. And the brandy got into it and put him under the table instead. Old Kumara reeled on home, leaving Jack as dumb as a haddock on Good Friday. Jack never woke till morning, and then he was in a sad way. Serves him right for thinking he can make the old marrow drunk, is what I say. But Jack, after he recovered some, spent the day ruminating about how he could free those souls, and at last thought, I bet old Koo never had a drop of poteen, that being a strong homebrew, <laughs> moonshine, if you will. I'll invite him round again, so I can have another twist at him. So Jack asked Koo again, and Koo laughed at him for not having a better head, saying he'd never live up to his grandfather. Well, try me again, said Jack, and I'll drink you drunk, then sober, then drunk again. Koo <laughs> obliged, and once again they met for dinner and drinks, this time rather than set out the brandy and any other foreign spirits after they eaten their fill, Jack brought out the poteen and plied Kumara with drink after drink. This time remembering to take one sip for every glass the marrow drunk. <laughs> Soon enough, the old marrow was on the floor, fast asleep. Jack snapped up the cocked hat and ran out to the rock, <laughs> leaped in, and soon was at Kumara's habitation. All was still as a churchyard at midnight. Not a marrow, young or old, was there. Jack quickly went in and turned up the pots. He didn't see anything he'd expected to, but remembered the priest saying that a living soul couldn't see a dead one, no more than a person could see the wind. Only he heard a little whispering whistle, 
with each pot he opened and upturned. Having done all he could for the souls trapped inside those lobster pots, he said a little prayer that each soul find their place, then set the lobster pots back in theirs. Jack set about returning home. He put the hat on the right way, which is to say, wrong way round. But when he got out, he found the water was so high above his head that he couldn't reach it. He walked around looking for a ladder but could find none. There was not even a tall rock to be found. At last he saw a spot where the sea hung lower than any others, and just as he came to it, a big cod pulled down its tail. Jack jumped and caught a hold of it, and the cod gave a bounce to shake him off and pulled Jack that bit higher he needed to get into the water. As soon as the hat touched the water, Jack was whisked away. Up he shot like a cork, dragging that poor cod that he forgot to let go of. He got to the rock in no time, and without a moment's delay, hurried home, rejoicing in the deed he'd done. When he got home, Jack wakened Kumara, and, perceiving the fellow to be rather dull, bid him not to be so downcast. T'was many a good man that was sensitive to poteen, and that on account of not being used to the stuff. Jack offered the marrow by way of a cure, the hair of the dog what bit him. Kumara had, however, had had quite enough, and without having the manners to speak one word of civility, sneaked off to cool himself by a jaunt through the salt water. Kumara never missed the souls. He and Jack continued to be the best of friends in the world, and no one, perhaps save the saints or such other holy spirits, ever equaled Jack in freeing souls from purgatory for he contrived fifty excuses for getting into the house below and turning up those lobster pot soul cages, all unbeknownst to his friend the Marrow. Their friendship continued for some years, until one morning when Jack threw a stone in the water, Kumar never surfaced. Jack threw another stone, and another, but no matter how many stones he threw that day, the Marrow never came. Jack tried again the next day, and the day after, but it was to no purpose. The marrow never came again, and since Jack had no hat to travel with, he couldn't go down to see what had become of him. But it was his belief that the old man, old fish, whatever he was, it was Jack's belief that he had either died or moved on to some other part of the sea, for Jack never saw his friend again. Or that's the story as I know it anyway. That was Soul Cages, a version of which can be found in Fairy and Folktales of the Irish Peasantry by William Butler Yeats. Next episode, we will continue with the fisherman theme that I seem to have stumbled into with a tale inspired by the fisherman and his wife, also known as the magic fish, also known as the golden fish, by either the Brothers Grimm or Alexander Pushkin. And then after that, the story of Tom Bawcock, a legendary fisherman from Cornwall. I hope you enjoyed my story. And I hope you enjoy my next one. Until next time, this is Tangling Tales, and I am Amber. Fare thee well. <laughs>